Please turn in your Bibles to Titus. Our text is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your uh, saving hand at work in our lives. We pray that you would uh, lead us into righteousness, and we do look forward to this blessed hope and this glorious appearing. In Christ's name we pray and give you thanks. Amen. So this is the fifth of our seven-part series in Titus. So the first was following orders. Paul told Titus to set things in order and to appoint elders. And then second was choosing lieutenants, and that covered the elders' role and the qualifications. Establishing discipline was third, and Titus was to stop the mouths of those that were opposing the spread of the gospel there. And then the fourth last week was training troops. Paul gave specific direction as to how to reach each of the different social groups on Crete. And they really did all have kind of an uphill battle to overcome the uh, deserved reputation that they had uh, on that island. Today's message is entitled, Honoring Heroes. And so we'll start at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We start with the word for, and so we look back. And so last week I just told you that we covered those ten verses, those five social groups. And so what Paul is saying now is for, and he's connecting it with all that he just said, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And so he's speaking then to all of these various groups that he's just commented on. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, bond servants, all of these people. But then what does he say? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And he's going to tell them how to live. He did that, right? He's going to tell them how to live. And now he's reminding them why they're to live that way. So he's already given them the instructions. Now he's going to connect that to motivation, why it is they should be desirous to live as he's just told them to live. The grace of God brings salvation. That's what this says. This is from a commentary that I read on this text. God's grace is his active favor bestowing the greatest gift upon those who deserve the greatest punishment. So that's God's grace to us. And here it's personified. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us. So it's as if grace is this person. And this grace is bringing us salvation and teaching us from that salvation. Now, I want to talk about this, all men. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. When you first hear that, to our ears, to our modern ears, when we hear this 
phrase, all men. We just think that it's about everybody. It's about all people now hearing this. But we're not thinking like this generation of believers who are new to this. Judaism had been contained to these tiny, this tiny nation. And now, while the Jews had spread all over the place in the dispersion of hundreds of years earlier, and so people were aware of them, they were still kind of regarded as this fairly unusual little zealous religious uh, body, ethnic for the most part. So when we hear this phrase, all men, it's really regarding the inclusiveness. In other words, God's gospel, God's word is no longer contained within this tiny nation. It's no longer bound up. I know a few months ago I covered this, this kind of uh, spread of the gospel, and I went all the way back to Genesis to show how the, the word of God, the relationship people had with God, was so tiny at the beginning. And then even everything is destroyed with Noah, and it's only saved through Noah and his family. But then it begins to spread again. God limits life such that evil would be dying off more quickly than it had been prior to the flood. Then you have this uh, Abraham chosen, and then you have from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you have these patriarchs, and you have the Jewish nation come from that out of Egypt. And yet you're always talking about some remnant, some small subset of people on the earth that God is particularly blessing, particularly reaching out to. It isn't that others couldn't become converts and join the Jews. They could. But you have to admit that's pretty unusual because there was an awful lot of ceremony involved with being Jews. And so people had to really want to be a Jew in order to embrace all of that. So people of all kinds now, however, the gospel has been opened to. So we're talking about crossing genders, old, young, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, bondservant, slave and free. It's now penetrated all of those boundaries, all of those borders. So for thousands of years, people had largely been excluded from God's blessing, and yet now it was cracked wide open. So that's what's being communicated here. Salvation has appeared to all men. Let me go to Acts and take you to the story of Cornelius, just briefly. Acts 10 is where we see this crack open. So the whole chapter is dedicated to this. So it begins with this vision that Cornelius has. He's a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household. And the ninth hour of the day, so about three in the afternoon, he sees this vision. And he tells him, go uh, send to Joppa to this man named Simon, whose surname is Peter, and he will come and he will tell you a story. So this all happens. At the same time, Peter is experiencing this vision of the sheep being lowered, and he's telling God, no, I won't eat that. I won't eat that unclean thing. And yet God says, that which I have cleaned, don't call unclean. So this is mystifying to Peter. I mean, what is going on? This is just strange. Let me read just a few verses from this story. A voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. That's verse 15. Verse 22. 
They said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Verse 28, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. What had just happened in the Holy Spirit being poured out upon these Gentiles was miraculous. It was just God breaking down that border that separated Jew and Gentile. And so then Peter and these other uh, Jews that were there are astonished at what's happened. And it really took them a while to integrate that into the way they thought, into the way they acted. We have the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, several chapters later, where they're still working out the ramifications of what's happened. It was upending everything. Now, in Titus, we have this word, appeared. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The root of this word, appeared, is the same root of the word for, that we have now for epiphany, an epiphany. Now, I am more accustomed to the secular definition of an epiphany, and I think most of us are familiar with it. That is, to suddenly grasp the full meaning of something. That's like when click. Suddenly you perceive something that you had never perceived before and you have what is called this epiphany. But see, there is this religious root to epiphany, a manifestation of a divine or supernatural being. So an epiphany is when an angel or a, a god appears. We know now when we refer to the pre-incarnate Christ as appearing in the Old Testament, we call it theophany. It's the appearance of God, theos. So see, these, this epiphany is rightfully and scripturally when some being appears. I want to go to Isaiah 9 and read a couple of different uh, verses from, first I'll go 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. This is Isaiah writing hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ but he's writing of the prophecy of what was to come. I'll go to Isaiah 49 and start reading at verse five. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Then we have Luke. Luke chapter 2, where we see the fulfillment of these things and the reference of them. Starting at verse 25, 
And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So this is what's meant by this all men. It is now open to all the people of all the world. And it is this personified grace of God that has brought salvation to, into the world, to all men. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So the grace of God not only saves us from destruction, it restores us, it reconciles us with the God with whom we were at odds before that salvation came. That grace of God also teaches us how to live. We just talked about that, verses 1 through 10 of this chapter. So God's grace teaches us how we're to live in God's presence, in God's family on this earth. And this teaching that's referenced here, this is a step-by-step teaching, a training, if you will, pedagogical. This is like being taught your blocks, your numbers, your letters, just the basics. This is what the, the Spirit of God is teaching us. And so now, in typical Pauline fashion, he talks about putting off and putting on, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, so here we're denying, we're putting off. So this denying is a product of your new will. You now have this new will that God has restored to be in sync with him, has cleansed of impurities, and he's going to fire that will up and have it instruct you into where you're to go, what you're to do. And he begins by saying, this is what you're not to do, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. So what is ungodliness? That is to throw off all obligation concerning the God that you are responsible to. Ungodliness can be just ignoring God having no need of God. But it usually goes farther as well. People fight against God. People that don't love God typically turn to hate God, to despise God. Uh, you know, you just can't search the web anymore for stuff and uh, be buffered from people that hate God. Uh, anytime the uh, conversation on like any various comments turn to things of God, you'll always have people insulting God on those comments. So now we are to deny ungodliness. So this new believer, these new believers in Crete are to deny ungodliness. So in other words, they're no longer to be throwing off those obligations that they have to this true God. And they are to deny worldly lusts. So immoral desires of all sorts, just living for pleasure, materialism, uh, vanity, pride, the passions, 
And so, see, when you throw off God, when you are ungodly, you do tend to then embrace this worldliness because that's what's left. When you throw out God, you have materialism. And so people tend then to become adept at pursuing the lusts of the world because they're not being uh, taught by God. They're not accepting God's teaching, and they're pursuing ungodliness and thus then worldly lusts. Instead, the put on, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So three things. They should live. So in other words, this is how you should live. He's... he's, uh, had told them in the 10 verses these actions, and yet this is why. This is why you're supposed to live like this. Live soberly. This is the fourth time already that Paul has used this word sober in this book. I mean, these people of Crete apparently needed to hear this word a lot. So elders and young men were, taught to, were told to be sober-minded. Older men were told to be sober. And now everyone is being told live soberly. Now, what does it mean? It doesn't really have to do with alcohol. It means be serious about life, be thoughtful about life, be purposeful about life. Life is a gift. Life has meaning. Many people throw it away. People that are ungodly, people that are pursuing the world often throw their lives away. Sometimes the people that have attained the world's riches throw their lives away because there is nothing there on that path for them. And they realize that sometimes at a young age. And then they just pursue the worldly path to destruction very quickly. All are to live soberly. And this pertains to the individual. You can see that this is an aspect of character. You're to be serious, purposeful, thoughtful. This emanates from within you. And so the first one about living soberly is about living out your character, being a good citizen. And then the next one is live righteously. And so this refers to the person's perspective on others. Am I going to be fair to others? Am I going to treat them well? Or am I going to live to take advantage of them? Are they really just more like the antelope and I'm the lion out on the Serengeti? That's how some people view life. Everybody else is just out there to be taken advantage of. But to live righteously is to have right actions towards others, to behave well towards others, treat them fairly, love them. And so here we're talking about the whole second table of the law. Then the third one, they should live godly. We began with the negative saying that they are not to be ungodly, and now we have the positive at the other end of the bookends to live godly lives. So what does that mean? It means that you are to now live each day in the presence of the Lord. You can no longer deny his existence. You know. You know he lives. You know you owe him. And he will accept nothing less than everything that you have, everything that you are. Salvation costs you nothing in terms of works, but it costs you everything in terms of everything else about your life. God takes us, saves us, he owns us. And we then, through thanksgiving, respond back to him with this godliness, this reverence, uh, living out our obedience to the Lord, living each day with and for God. And then we have this concept of time introduced. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In the present age. Now, many 
now and then, throughout time, have always regarded what you believe, what your principles are, as being something inherently necessarily different from how you behave or how you act. Not all are like that. You know, we would term them hypocrites. Not all are like that, but many are. You had the Greeks who pursued philosophy to a great degree, loved to sit around, as uh, Paul tells us later in Acts, uh, discussing whatever is new. And so they loved philosophizing. But yet, in their private lives, in their social structure, there was great immorality in Greece. They indulged in the flesh like few cultures did. And yet they didn't honor the flesh. They didn't value the flesh. They felt the flesh had no dignity. But they enjoyed it. Though it had no dignity, it offered them all this pleasure so they could indulge in it without any guilt because it had no meaning. It doesn't mean anything. Now, you might think that that's unique. That's a culture 2,000 years past. But that same thing persists. When I read after 9-11 about the lives of those men that were training to be pilots down in that school in Florida, what they did in their free time, many of them, was went to the nightclubs. They went out drinking and partying and whoring. They're supposed to be Muslims. They're supposed to be these jihadists. They're supposed to be these people that are sold out to Allah. But what did they care what they did with their bodies? Their bodies were now tools, weapons, that Allah would use in a jihad, which, according to the Quran, when you die in a jihad, you go right to glory. You're going to get your seven virgins. So see, they could live on this earth as they pleased. They couldn't care less how they lived on this earth. They were not held accountable to the same standards that other uh, Muslims would hold themselves accountable because they were going to sacrifice their lives in this upcoming jihad. And so they didn't have to worry about it. There was no aspect of holiness among those men. And when you read about it, you just feel dirty. You feel disgusted with these people. How could anybody honor these people? But that's the way some cultures behave. They divorce the principles from the practice. But yet we would rightfully call such people hypocrites. And we ought not be like that. It's not right. And yet we ought to see it and judge it when you see it. In the present age. So we're talking about time now. So we are to live in a way that pleases God in the here and now. That's important to God. There are people who uh, we know have come to be called carnal Christians who think that because Christ has paid it all and our works merit nothing towards our salvation, we can then live as we want because we are not at risk of damnation. It's such a wicked way of viewing salvation. And such people don't really have true faith. They are trying to get in to heaven on a technicality, honestly. They never had faith to be thinking like that, to have such uh, uh, base motives and base behavior. So now, our assurance of salvation, however, you know what it is. When we, when we convince people that you cannot lose your salvation, and I don't know, uh, some people here might believe they can lose their salvation, and yet really scripturally, there are verses that are very tricky, yet there are, is such bulk of evidence that shows that God saves us. 
We didn't save ourselves. And to the same extent then that God saved you, you can't unsave you. And that when you are saved, you will go to heaven to be with glory. I love John. John chapters 6 and 10 are just beautiful in illustrating that through Christ's own mouth. And so he says these words that are driving some people away because they're pursuing him for the wrong motives. But yet they comfort those that God is drawing to himself. So our assurance of salvation is a constant reminder for us to be thankful for where we could be if we had not been blessed with this grace of God. Now, I want to alter the order of something here. I'm going to read verse 13. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to start at the end of this, this phrase, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to uh, clear a little controversy out of the way. There are two titles referenced here, God and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me give you an alternative reading of this, a rendering of this, of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Essentially, it takes the our great God and put, puts a, a the in there, and then it puts our Savior, our in front of Savior Jesus Christ. Now, there are two titles here, and so some people say there are two people here, Father and Son. So they're saying that our great God is God the Father, and then Savior Jesus Christ is mentioned next. Now, I'll only say that, though, to say that uh, not many Orthodox people would really hold to there being two persons, explicit persons referenced here. Usually when people are pursuing the desire to have two persons, in some way they are working to diminish Christ in some way. Now, one of the arguments I'd heard arguing for two is this use of the word great, that they don't see great being used as an adjective in describing Christ at all. And yet, I don't know why when they would do that because I saw two references just through a search. In, now, it's, it's a little different, but still, I think it applies. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, where the angel Gabriel has appeared to Mary, he uses the word great, that your child will be great. And then in Hebrews 4.14, we also see that Jesus is referred to as the great high priest. So whomever is arguing that we ought not be calling Jesus great, I think is trying to diminish him. And there's obvious evidence in other places that Jesus was called great, and he is great. So I just wanted to kind of clear that little bit out of the way. It's one person. There's a rule in exegesis called the Granville Sharp rule now, and it's when you have one article modifying both of these. You, you always take the same person. It's always the same person, and you don't have evidence of that rule being broken if you understand how the rule is applied in Scripture. And that rule applies here. Now, I want to begin at the beginning of verse 13, though. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, he's just told us not to live ungodly lives, to live sober, righteous, godly lives, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this has consumed me for many hours in recent days, and I would say that I'm still not entirely comfortable 
with uh, sharing all that I would like to. Um, but uh, I will share what I, what I feel I do understand and believe. So first, verse 12 ended with an emphasis upon the present age. Godly in the present age. So to, we're to live godly in the present age. Then verse 13 starts with looking for the blessed hope. We're looking to the future now. This is how you're to live, and this is why you're to live this way, because of what God has done for you. And then also there is this additional motivation. This is some future event that we all should look forward to. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, looking for the blessed hope. This is the hope of all believers. The blessed hope. The the there is, is a very particular definitive article. The blessed hope. So now we're shedding sin and we're being clothed in righteousness in this blessed hope. That is the blessed hope. And let me give you some references and I'll read the text actually. Galatians 5.5. 5. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So ultimate righteousness, complete righteousness. Not the, uh, the uh, justification that we have while on this earth, but the complete righteousness where we're not sinning anymore. We're behaving ourselves. Let me read Colossians 1 verses 3 through 5. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel so the hope that these colossians that paul is referring to this with these colossians is laid up for them like something that when they arrive in heaven they'll pick up second corinthians 3:18 but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So this is now morphing into this glory that, that God's glory, Christ's glory, will ultimately be our glory. And that while we're here on this earth, to the degree that we are renewed in Christ's image, we will reflect that glory. Like the moon reflects the sun, this, this weaker shine but yet, if you're living for God, if you're being sanctified, then you will begin to emit that glow, that reflection of God in your character. So now, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Now, the literal translation here is looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory. And the appearing of the glory. Let me read some more text to you concerning this glorious appearing. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Colossians 3, 4. If then you were raised with Christ, oh, this is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, 
For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I want to read that one again because I want you, I want to note something. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now, the next word is really amazing. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. So we are eagerly waiting for the Savior from heaven. Now, I mean, it's remarkable. What do these things mean? I don't know. I want to study it more. I'm so frustrated by not knowing, and I apologize. I should have started on this much longer ago. And yet, there is so much beauty here that I can't fully grasp. Let me read one last text. Well, maybe one, at least one. I want to read from 2 Corinthians starting at chapter 5. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's what's waiting for you in heaven. That's from which, that's the last verse. For in this we groan, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, we're talking about one little verse in Titus that is important. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. The two are linked right here in this text. You can't get around that. They're linked together in time. I want to read one more text. Maybe one more. In Acts. Acts chapter 7. Stephen has just given this amazing sermon... And we come to this in verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, saw the glory, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
and this is when he's died. They leave their coats at Saul's feet. So see, the last thing Stephen saw, even before imminent death, was the Lord Jesus. The glory of God and the Lord Jesus standing beside that glory at the right hand of God the Father. So see, this word that is in 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, is again epiphany, just like it was earlier in 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Epiphany. 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, the epiphany of our great God and Savior Jesus. So see, we each await our ultimate epiphany because that blessed hope is you putting on your eternal body, being free forever from this one that has been corrupted by sin. And so that blessed hope is the blessed hope. It's the hope that all of us have. And it's linked with this glorious appearing of Christ. So see, when we leave this flesh, we will appear before the Lord and we will be transformed. He will clothe us in that righteous body. Who gave himself for us. So we're at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. I want to skip that first clause, who gave himself for us. Instead, I want to go on to the next one. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Jesus' sacrifice is to fully redeem us from every sin. So Christ's death redeems us from every sin. And anybody that teaches anything different is apostate. So when the Roman Catholic Church has this very involved process of being cleansed and they introduce this concept of purgatory through which others can pray you out of and through which these, these uh, human works will fill up this vat and get you out of there, that is a lie. And it's more than a lie. It's offensive. It's offensive to Christ. All forms of workers' righteousness, all forms of self-righteousness die for the sin that they are. They are laid under the blood of Christ. And so he purify, purifies for himself his own special people. Now, I don't know if you used to read the King James, but if you did, then you know what that word special is. Particular. Jesus has his own particular people. About 30 years ago, there was a late-night comedian who would, uh, this was a guy, but he would dress as an older woman, and whenever someone said something that he didn't like, he would say, he would smile, tilt his head, and say, well, aren't you special? Aren't you special? You can kind of hear that. I, I think it's just entered into popular culture. Uh, people uh, responding sarcastically to you whenever you, uh, in some way, state some entitlement that they don't feel, feel you're entitled to. Well, aren't you special? So see, this is a biblical phrase. This is a biblical concept. If you're God's child, then you are special. You are peculiar, a variant of special. 
but you are special to the Lord. God is creating you, carving you out of this horribly sin-filled world and renewing you in His image. And He's making you zealous for good works. His own special people, zealous for good works. Paul stresses, I'd mentioned sober. He, he already said sober four times. He also uses the phrase good works four times. He uses the word good 11 times in this book to Titus. It's amazing. It's just unusual to see that many references of the word good. When Cornelius is the man, this Roman centurion of the Italian regiment that is selected to be the one that Peter goes to, to introduce the saving, the salvation to the Gentiles. Why is it? Acts 10.4 says, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So see, this man, this Roman centurion, who was uh, basically in love with God and had embraced Judaism to the degree that he did and was kind to the Jews that he was around, his prayers and his alms had come up as a memorial before God. So God chose him, rewarded him for this. Now, every country recognizes acts of heroism. I don't care how evil a country is, like North Korea, they still recognize their heroes. Every culture needs heroes, and they recognize them. Now, I went out and I searched for heroes on the web. It's, it's easy to do. And so I found the definitive reference for heroes and Moses is 35th on the all-time heroes list. He is right after Rosa Parks, and he's right before Charles Dickens. So now we know where Moses is. Now, you can't find Jesus on that list. I have a feeling that they rigged this survey to where you couldn't select Jesus. I remember years ago, I was in a class at work, and it was a long class. I think it was four hours or eight hours all day. And uh, early on in the class, we were asked to name a hero. And so someone went, someone went, someone went. I went. I said, Jesus. And so the person right before me had selected Martin Luther King Jr. And I thought, of, well, you know, that guy's a preacher. He's a Christian preacher. He's a Baptist preacher. That guy would certainly think that, you know, selecting Jesus was fine. Oh, no, that guy gave me grief throughout the rest of the class. Now, he didn't say it was because I said Jesus was my hero. But yet, our culture has a real problem with people regarding Jesus as a hero. <clears throat> there is a movie at the theaters now. I'd like to go see it, maybe when it gets cheaper. But uh, it's called Dunkirk. So in 1940, before the U.S., long before the U.S. was in the war, uh, Germany had invaded France and, and Britain had tried to help, but yet here the German army has driven 340,000 troops into this small area that was known as Dunkirk. And it looked as if the German army was just going to swamp them, uh, imprison them all, 340,000 people. Yet the local commander on the ground was concerned about pushing more and so wanted to halt. Hitler gave the okay to halt. They halted for two days. In the interim, he tried to get the Luftwaffe to destroy these troops that are all congregated there. They didn't do it. But that two days gave them time to establish a holding uh, 
a holding action. And over the course of like seven or eight days, they invaded, they, or they uh, got rid of all those 340,000 people. They had all these bizarre boats on the Mediterranean that came across the channel and ferried these people back to Britain. Uh, just thousands and thousands and thousands of fishing boats and commercial boats. There were very few uh, military boats available at that point. So see, this was this tremendous rescue on a scale that is hard to believe. All these people, uh, many of you are familiar with the revolutionary story of Washington ferrying his army in this dense fog, escaping from sure calamity. If the British had only pressed their advantage, they'd have captured Washington and all of his army. But yet they chose not to press it. He escaped overnight. This one, though, the scale is just enormous, 338,000 troops. But see, Jesus is a hero that, in terms of scale, goes so much beyond any other story you've ever heard about rescue. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us, and his sacrifice is the greatest act of selflessness ever seen on the earth. The scale of it is immense. Millions, billions, and we don't know. Time is still counting. We don't know what the eventual count will be, but his sacrifice has affected billions of people. And the scope is utterly unique. The scope goes beyond this world into the next world. There is no other human that can do that. Only Christ can do that. Many of you are probably uh, familiar with a poem that talks about Jesus. The title of the poem is A Solitary Life. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read the last paragraph. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Christ changed everything and still is changing everything. And it's obvious when we look at our culture how far, how ungodly they have become, how they are pursuing headlong worldly lusts. It's no wonder they are offended Christ, and they really ought to be offended by us. And so we, as Christ's church, remain behind on this earth to endure that abuse that they no longer have access to him to bring out on him, but that's our role. God has appointed us for this. So we ought not be afraid of it. God is our Savior. God is our hero. Jesus gave himself for us. He rescued us from certain destruction, just like these people that were on that beach. What God expects in return is what? Obedience, thankfulness, and service. Obedience, thankfulness, and service. He doesn't ask much of us. Just everything. All that you are, all that you hope to be, setting aside all ungodliness and worldliness. Jesus made us his peculiar people, and we each await our own blessed hope where this body will be made immortal and, and sinless and this epiphany where we will see Jesus, we will see this Savior. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then we will be finally and completely clothed in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your presence in this world for the fact that you have uh, reached out to all men, uh, rich,
poor, Gentile, Jew, men, women, uh, slave-free. We thank you, Lord, that you have expanded the scope of your salvation to cover all mankind. And so we pray that we would be truly thankful, that we would live in obedience to your commands, and that we would do acts of loving service in this world. Uh, we want to be your children. We want to make you proud. We pray, Lord, please uh, have your Holy Spirit to enter into our hearts to convict us of sin and unrighteousness and to cling to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.